I feel like after all those songs, I don't really need to say much else. No, it really is true. I mean, we really do think in RUF about trying to find songs that are more honest about suffering and more explicit and clear about the good news of the gospel. What does it mean that we're justified by grace, that we have peace with God now, and that we can stand in that grace, which is what our passage talks about tonight. And so I hope you get that. We don't just pick these weird old songs because we think, you know, that they're cool. We just really want the gospel to get into our hearts. And, um, you know, songs are a great way to do that. It's too, too good an opportunity to miss to get those kinds of uh, truths deeply embedded in our soul and in our community. Um, so tonight we're going to look at chapter 5 of the book of Romans. Paul has been talking about justification by faith. And just for those of you who maybe haven't tracked with us, I'll just say two things. One, I do podcast all the messages that I do at RUF, uh, Belmont, at, or I think it's RUF at Belmont. You can find it on iTunes, wherever you look for podcasts. Um, but uh, one of the things that I've been talking about is justified. To be justified in God's sight means to be beautiful in his sight because he regards you as having done everything he requires from the heart. And while you and I haven't done that, Jesus has. And if you put your faith in Christ, you are in union with Christ. And as the great old hymn writer Horatius Bonar put it once, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. To have faith in Christ means to trust his life and his death in your place for what God thinks about you. And uh, it's actually the only thing that can bring real peace and real security. Now, tonight, where Paul goes with this argument in Romans in chapter 5 is, what difference does that truth make in the midst of trials and suffering? Because I, I think one of the things that trials do is that they disrupt our sense of what is true and real. They have kind of this disorientation effect. And I know for a lot of people, coming to college is a time, maybe you have grown up in church and you've never really thought much about, you know, is the Bible to be trusted? And you get to college and you hear lots of different things and maybe your trust in God's word gets shaken. And I always encourage students to sort of look into that and deal with that because what you don't want is to have that still kind of going on when trials come. Because trials have a way of focusing us on what can we really know. They have a way of stripping away a lot of things and getting you kind of down to bedrock. And therefore, Paul wants to speak here tonight to us about this connection between justification, being beautiful in God's sight because of what he's done in Christ, and the difference that makes in how we endure trials. How do I know if God likes me? Have you ever wondered that question? How do I know if God likes me? The answer is by looking to what Christ has done. Your feelings go up and down. 
And particularly when you're in the midst of a trial, uh, your feelings are really not to be depended upon. But what we can trust in is what Paul talks about here in Romans 5, that Jesus has secured peace with God, and now we stand in this grace, in this new status. So let's read this passage. Follow along as I read Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is our only hope tonight. Lord, pray, we pray that you would help us to see how that connects to suffering and trials and what a difference it makes. Send your spirit to help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul here wants to talk about two things, basically. What justification gives us, and how justification transforms suffering and trials. So we look at the beginning here. Since we have been justified by faith. So that's, uh, you know, that's the thing that has happened because of what God has done. If you've put your faith in Christ, then you have been justified by faith. What does that get you? Well, he says, we have peace with God. Peace with God. That means we are no longer God's enemies. Now, some of you may think, well, you know, why would we be God's enemies? Because if you remember chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, God made us to glorify him and enjoy him, right? And and mankind says, no, I'm not interested in worshiping God. I would rather worship things that I feel like I can control because putting my hope and trust in God who doesn't operate at my beck and call, that's a little scary. I think I'd rather put my hope and my trust in what I can do and in what uh, other things that I think I can control. And, and God says, 
It's not what I made you for. It breaks my heart. You've ruptured this relationship I created you to have. We were to be, we were to be friends. We were, you were to be part of my family, and now you've ruptured the relationship by turning away from me. And God doesn't leave us in that state through justification, through Jesus coming, living and dying in the place of sinners, we who deserve nothing of the sort get peace. Peace, it's an objective reality. There was warfare, but now there is peace. We have been reconciled. Do you see how often that word came up in this section? We have been reconciled to God through Jesus. And that's theological shorthand for through his blood, which means... He died to take the punishment that all those who had spit in God's face deserved. And as you see, he did it while we were still sinners. While we didn't want to have anything to do with God. God didn't look out there and say, well, you know, these people mean well. He said, no, they really don't. Really, in their heart of hearts, they don't want me for me. Oh, they might want me for the things they think I can give them, but they don't want me for me. Nonetheless, my son is going to die in their place. It's extraordinary when you think about it. And that's what Paul says, right? Like it's crazy that somebody would die for another person, though maybe for a good person you might possibly die. But the the gospel is so much Bigger than that and more extraordinary than that. Because while we were still sinners, that means while we were enemies at God, spitting in his face, he said, I'm going to die for you. I mean, we have trouble even talking to people that we know hate us, let alone dying for them to be reconciled. So we have peace because of what Jesus has done. And In verse 2, he says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, and I love this, in which we stand. That means we have peace, but we have security. It's not peace that could go away. It's not a temporary situation. We have access into this grace in which we stand. It's the idea, the image here is a great and powerful person that you couldn't possibly ever meet unless somebody introduced you. So what Paul is saying is, you have been introduced, you have been granted access, and you stand in the security of this access. It can't go away. John Stott, great uh, British pastor, put it this way, justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. Our relationship with God into which justification has brought us is not sporadic, but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in or out of favor with their sovereign or politicians with the public. Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at like approval polls for what he thinks about you? You are secure because Jesus, Jesus lived and died in your place. I love there's a passage, I don't know if you ever read this story, this guy named Mephibosheth. 
It's in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 9. He is a guy who really, by all rights, should have been put to death because he was the grandson of Saul, Saul who tried to kill David. And when David comes to the throne, David would have been expected to find all of the heirs of Saul, the previous regime, and put them to death because they are a threat to his kingdom. If anybody ever wanted to uh, start a coup against King David, they're going to look for somebody who might have a legitimate claim to the throne. In other words, somebody related to Saul. So David says, is there anybody left of the house of Saul to whom I can show, this is the extraordinary part, hesed, which means covenant mercy, steadfast love, sometimes that Hebrew word is translated. And they're like, well, there's this guy Mephibosheth, and he's kind of in hiding. And, and David has him brought to the palace, and he says, Mephibosheth, you are going to eat at the king's table like a royal son for the rest of your life. That's the heart of the gospel. And, and Mephibosheth even said, oh, king, who are you to notice a dead dog like me? You wonder where we get that phrase. That's from the Bible. I'm a dead dog, and you've now made me to sit and eat at your table like a royal son, a royal daughter. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? But the question, I guess, guys, is do we take advantage of this privilege? Or are we content with just sporadic, every once in a while, access to our king? We have been given grace access to stand before him. As the book of Hebrews says, we can come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. I don't want you to, to walk out of here feeling ashamed. I want you to understand that if you're thirsting, if you're thirsting for access, run to the king. You have been granted secure access he also says that we have something else. He says that we have new goals and hope. So we have peace, we have the security of access, and we have new goals and hope. This is in the end of verse 2. He says, we've been given access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, now, what does that mean? Rejoice, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's a lot of kind of Christianese words. Let me explain what this means, because it's a really big deal, a really important thing. The glory of God, the glory of God means the weightiness of God. It, it, it's basically to treat him as weighty or with reverence. And the thing that he's saying here is that once where we feared and resisted the weightiness of God, now we long for it. We long to see his righteous rule, his kingdom extended everywhere. This is what we hope for. But you need to understand, in the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is always secured. In other words, the secured future that is guaranteed, that God's glory will be revealed in the fullest way, beyond what you can even hope or imagine, that future that's secured breaks into the now. We live out of this solid, secured future. That's what it means to rejoice in hope. It means right now, through worship, through rejoicing in the glory of God that's coming, we taste it even now. 
We taste it even now. It's amazing. It's a joyful, confident expectation which rests on the promises of God. That's what this hope is. You know, we're taught to pray for his kingdom to come. That's the Lord's Prayer. Maybe some of you have heard that. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Um, And we know that one day his kingdom will come in fullness, that his right rule will be seen ever. But we are to rejoice now in the reality that is coming. We know it's coming. It's not a nice little fact just to stick in the back of your mind somewhere for when you might actually need it. The glory of God that is coming is to be the constant object of our meditation. It should be the longing that puts all other longings in their place. And it's something that we actually have to nurture and stir up. It's one of the reasons that we sing so many of these songs about the hope of heaven. When we sing that song, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, and cast a wistful eye. It's saying we're trying to get our imagination around the glorious future that has been secured by what Jesus did and even begin to taste it right now. That's what it means to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. To see his beauty even now and have it capture our hearts. As one of my professors in seminary used to say, heaven is an acquired taste. If you think it's going to be boring, you need to sing more. You need to get your heart more around the glorious future when we will see God as he is. This is what we look for, right? So what justification gives us? It gives us peace It gives us security. It gives us new goals and new hope. And I would say one of the tests you can do in your own life for whether or not the gospel is really getting into the deep crevices of your heart is has it changed your goals and your hope? Has it changed your goals or your hope? All right, next point. How justification transforms suffering. You probably didn't expect verse 3 to go where it goes. I mean, it seems like he's just talking about some good theology and what we have in the gospel. And then he says, not only that, like even more than as good as this peace and this access and this new hope and new goals, as good as that is, even more, we rejoice in our sufferings. You might be like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Now notice, He doesn't say, I rejoice in our sufferings. I'm sorry, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, not because of our sufferings. Christianity is not masochism. It's not, you know, just, you know, beat yourself up all the time. And and the more miserable you are, the more holy you are. And unfortunately, I I just feel like a lot of Christians who've been raised in good Bible-believing churches, if you actually talk to them, you might get the impression that somewhere along the line, they believe that the holier you are, the more miserable you'll be. That's not true. Um, We are to rejoice in our sufferings, in the midst of our sufferings, not because of them. But why are we to rejoice? Well, he says it's because they're changing us. 
And God is using them to make us more like Christ. More like Christ, the man of sorrows. The man who was acquainted with grief. You see, for a Christian who has learned to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, suffering is not the worst thing. Missing out on the glory is. Now, if you're in the midst of the trauma of suffering right now, that can be hard to hear. This is not what Paul would say to somebody right in the midst of everything blowing up. But the Bible does encourage us to get these truths into our heart so that we'll have them when we need them. The Bible also encourages us to reflect on and connect the dots after the initial trauma has started to fade. We are, that's what Paul's doing here, you see. He's saying, let's connect the dots between suffering and justification. What difference does it make? And what he's saying here is trials have a way of focusing us and making us more like Christ. But the key to that actually happening is in understanding justification. If you don't understand justification, every trial becomes a double trial. Let me explain that. If you are not convinced that you have peace with God because of what Jesus did, if you are always wondering, what does God really think about me? I'm really not sure. Then what happens when a trial comes? You see it as, as sort of this major kind of, uh, you know, referendum, if you will, or a Rorschach test to, to understand what does God think about me? Do you see what I'm saying? If every trial is a new opportunity for you to wonder what God thinks about you, then it makes every trial a double trial. Justification is vital to understand, to grow in trials. Because trials have a way of focusing us, but they also, if you're unclear about what God thinks about you, it can make you obsess over what is this trial saying about what God thinks about me. Does that make sense? That's why Paul wants you to understand, we have peace with God, not because of how well we deal with trials. Notice that? That's good news tonight. God does not say, I love you because you endure trials so well. He says, I love you because you have become reconciled to me by the blood of my son whom I loved and gave for you. Therefore, it changes the way you can actually endure in the midst of trials because you know that it is not proof that God hates you. It can't be. That was settled at the cross. Does that make sense? That's why this matters so much, right? Now, Paul is claiming not only do we get joy through the gospel, he actually says that joy stays joy in the midst of suffering and even increases. That's what he says, right? It it, it produces hope. Because God's love, he says in the end of verse 5, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then he goes on for like five verses about how he just can't get over how Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Do you see what, 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 what we're getting here? Paul just can't get over 
the mercy that we've been given by God in the gospel. Yes, he understands suffering, but suffering is just almost like a launching point for him to then start talking about justification again and about what God has done. I'll just tell you, that I had an, um, an experience of this. Um, Wendy might remember this. We went down to Peru on a mission trip. Gosh, it's 20 years ago. Um, it was actually right after this um, guerrilla, Marxist guerrilla movement had been just ravaging Peru, uh, a group called the Shining Path. And it was awful, particularly for Christians, because you would have the Marxist guerrillas who would go into these peasant villages, go into the churches and just machine gun everybody down. 28 to 70,000 people, they estimate, were killed during the years of the Shining Path. It lasted for 20 or 30 years. But not only that, then the government, their solution was just to go into the same villages and go into churches and machine gun everybody down. And we, I remember we were able to finally go into Peru. It was the first time mission teams were allowed back in after the, the Shining Path had kind of been dealt with and they weren't in the main cities in Lima, for instance. They were more still uh, up in the mountains. And, and as we're talking, as we've got all these college students, Bob Woodson, the missionary who'd been there, gosh, since the 60s, right? Been there his whole life. I'll never forget this. Um, at some point, somebody asked him, how he you know, decided to be a missionary. And this man, he's been a Christian now 50, 60 years. He's endured watching so many of his friends and brothers and sisters in Christ gunned down, right? And you know what made him weep? Remembering how Jesus saved him when he was in college. Like he, can't t he couldn't tell his testimony without beginning to weep that God would have mercy on someone like him. And we're all just like, like, how beautiful. After 50 years, the main thing to him is not all that I suffered for Jesus and he owes me. It's, oh, how much I owe Jesus because he saved a wretch like me. That's what you get with Paul here. He's not saying suffering isn't real, it doesn't matter. No, he knows it matters. But he's saying there is something about the way suffering, if you process it through justification, you can understand it as a way to bring focus and even a pathway to understand the love of God in a deeper way. See, suffering doesn't automatically make us stronger. It doesn't. It can actually destroy us. Tim Keller says it well. He says, consider how persons take suffering who are trying to be justified by their own works. Self-justifiers are always insecure at a deep level because they know that they're not living up to their own standards, but they can't admit it. So when suffering hits, they immediately feel they are being punished for their sins. They can't take confidence in God's love since their belief that God loved them was inadequately based anyway, now suffering shatters them. Suffering drives them away from God rather than toward him. Suffering does not automatically produce character or perseverance. It's only when you understand that the one who has allowed trials into your life is the one who loves you deeply and wants to make you more like Jesus. And I'll just say this, it's, it's important. For some, 
you can actually, sometimes in the midst of suffering, your heart is so deceitful, as is mine, that we can even begin to feel like God owes us in suffering. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, don't make your wounds a rival for the wounds of Christ. It's by his wounds that we're healed. He cares about our suffering. But sometimes we can feel like God owes us. The thing that makes you beautiful in God's sight is not, again, how you've endured suffering or not done well with suffering, but what Jesus did. All right, let me just go into this little thing, what we call the chain in verse 3 through 5. I, I just want to talk about this, this little thing, this amazing assertion of Paul. Right? Paul says suffering produces perseverance, but actually a better translation of perseverance is single-mindedness. Trials focus us, they order our priorities, and the word translated character really has the sense of being battle-tested. Right? And I, think about, I was thinking about Wendy and I, you know, how many of you here are first, firstborn children? Right? Oh, isn't that so fascinating? You know, firstborn children freak out parents. They're, they're always like self-conscious and insecure and what do I do? Second, by the second child, you're like, yeah, whatever, we got this, you know? Um, there really is something about being battle-tested with that first child that makes you less skittish and less nervous with your second child. That's what Paul said. There's something about trials that when you get through them, you understand like God can really meet me in the midst of this. And, and, and I think one of the ways that, that I've, I've seen this is in the midst of trials, I think so often the, uh, the thing that comes up in our heart, at least it does with me, is like, what? Or, here, here's the way, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna say it this way. The thing that, that is so difficult in trials is to think, like, I would do anything to not have this. And, and that, that right there, there's a doorway into considering this. Jesus actually had a choice between suffering and not. And he chose suffering. So when you are suffering things that you would do anything to avoid, you actually have a doorway into feeling a little bit of what Jesus consciously, intentionally brought into his life. I think sometimes the love of Christ feels very abstract and, and, the, and the pain of suffering feels very real. And what I'm saying is you actually have a doorway in the midst of that pain to feeling what Jesus' love felt like for him. Like, for his, for his love felt like for him dying on a cross and screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt in the midst of that? You have a doorway into understanding. As a matter of fact, if you've suffered the kinds of trials that make you cry out that way, you actually have a great gift to give every one of us to understand something about the intensity of what Jesus experienced that for others of us seems more theoretical. And I think sometimes we don't know what to do with that because it just is so powerful. And sometimes we don't even know how to talk about it. But uh, trust me, believe me, there's a doorway in there. 
There is something about suffering that gives you an opportunity to understand the love of God, what he talks here about the Spirit pouring love into our hearts through that doorway. Well, I, I think uh, I want to close this. Let me just, I, I, I did put some things on here, some maybe diagnostic questions about suffering that might be helpful. But, but I wanted, to, I wanted to, to, to give testimony. I forgot I was going to explain the story behind that hymn that we sang, Sweet Comfort. So we used to sing that hymn. The original name of that hymn, it was written in the 1600s by a guy named Samuel Rodegast. Um, he wrote it for a friend of his who they all thought was dying. And the guy actually recovered, and then he kept asking for that song every week in church, and eventually they put it in the hymnal. That's a true story. Um, but, and we used to sing it with like this kind of plodding tune. So it was like just kind of gutting it out. Whatever my God ordains is right. Right? It was like, I believe it. I Help me in my unbelief. But I'm just going to, you know, one step in front of the other is about as good as I can do. Okay? Well, Sandra and um, Latifah, you know, two friends of mine, ended up, both of them experiencing horrific betrayals in their marriage and divorce. And... What amazes me is they took that strong hymn about the sovereignty of God and wrote that chorus, Sweet Comfort. I just think that that's such a testimony to the way God met them. Because nobody said, hey, write a chorus that says Sweet Comfort. When they thought about the sovereignty of God and what they were experiencing in the midst of some of the most intense trials that they would ever go through, the sovereignty of God became for them sweet comfort. And it came from an honest place, not a manufactured place. That was what they tasted in the midst of that. Now we're going to sing a closing hymn, and I want to tell you something about this one too. A love that will not me go if the worship team wants to come forward and get ready. Um, George Matheson wrote this him back in the 1800s. He was a Scottish seminary student. He was studying for the ministry. He was engaged to be married, and then he began to lose his sight. His fiancée broke off the engagement, said she didn't want to be married and go through life with a blind man. He never did marry, but he did become a pastor, actually a, pretty, uh, a pastor of a pretty large church in Edinburgh. And um, the night that he wrote this hymn, he tells us a little bit about the story in his, in his diary. He said the night that he wrote this hymn was the night of his sister's wedding. His sister lived with him and managed the household, but now she was going to go leave, and he was going to be left by himself, and he actually stayed behind at the house while the family went to the wedding. He said that as he wrestled with God, something of incredible difficulty passed between he and God, and this hymn came to him like it was dictated in a matter of about 15 minutes. He wrote 200 other hymns, but none of them came to him like this one. But there's a line that we sing, uh, I trace the rainbow through the rain. He actually originally wrote, I climb the rainbow through the rain. And the reason that's significant is this, the rainbow in Genesis that God gives as a sign to Noah, what is it a sign of? It's a sign that God will not destroy the world by flood again. And do you know what the picture is? It's a bow that's like a battle bow cocked and aimed at God himself. That's the picture. And what the book of Hosea tells us 
is that God will set down his battle bow on the day he marries himself to his people. That is what George Matheson wrote. Not, I just, when trials come, I look for a silver lining. That's what, that's what I think when I think of, I trace the rainbow through the rain. I see it. Okay, good. But no, what he wrote is, I climb it. I grab hold of the promise of God, what the Apostle Paul told us, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Because we live on the other side of that battle bow being loosed on Christ. We don't have to wonder what's going to happen with the battle bow. It's already been dealt. It's death blow to Jesus. We live on the other side of that. Thus we have peace we have security, and we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So let's stand and sing about the love that will not let us go.